Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Welcome to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you once again. I understand we have a couple of interesting things. I hear we have a couple of interesting things to cover, but uh, first and foremost, I want to defer to uh, something that uh, happened to you over the weekend. Yes, for the first time in many, many decades, I am now without a horse or without a pet. We had a horse, his name was Buck, and if somebody wants to sell you a horse named Buck, you should always ask why, (laughs) but... Buck was a wonderful horse. Once in a while, he'd get a little wild, but he was a wonderful horse. And he, we bought him in 2001, and at that time, he was 12 years old. When you buy a quarter horse that is not registered, many times you don't know much about his background. And I don't know his background before that time. I always wish he could tell me about it. But... The way he kind of leaned into corners and so on, I always had the feeling that he might have been used for barrel racing at one time. And anyway, I know that where you're located out there in Idaho and where you used to be in Utah, that is horse country out there. And so some of your listeners will probably be interested in this. When he first bought Buck, he was up in a pasture up north of Montgomery there. and I tried out several horses. There was one beautiful Palomino, but... Both my wife and my son kept pointing to Buck, saying, that's the one you need to buy. He had more spirit than the others. And anyway, they were right. He turned out to be a wonderful horse. We had many, many years, wonderful rides together and a few wild ones, too. I remember one time we were probably, oh, half a mile or so away from the house there out in the pasture. And he seemed agitated, and all of a sudden he took off, and I had no idea he could run that fast. But <clears throat> he just took off toward our pasture, and I thought maybe I should try to eject, but decided that no, at this speed, I'd get hurt no matter what happened if I best my best hope to try to stay on. So leaned over and put my arms around his neck to hold on. As we got close to the house, then... I, we had a gate there, and I thought he might make a sudden turn to the right into the gate, in which case he chances are to throw me on the turn. But anyway, he <clears throat> slowed down at that point, and from that point for the rest of the day, he just acted like, well, what's wrong? Everything's fine. And my feeling at the time was that if I could know it was going to end the same way, I'd probably want to do this again. It was exhilarating, but also scary. But <clears throat> anyway... He was 33 years old, and last Sunday morning when I went out to feed him before church, I discovered he hadn't touched his feed from the night before, so I knew then something was probably wrong, and I found him over by the pond. He was just stretched out there, just like he'd laid down to go to sleep, and I am thankful to the, the Lord for the many good years we had, and the fact that he died apparently with very little discomfort as of Saturday morning, he seemed fine, and that we didn't have to put him down, which is always hard. But anyway, to all the horse lovers out there, I just say farewell to great, great horse by the name of Buck. Well, I'm sorry to hear of your loss. That's a long time. Did you, did you have him the whole 33 years? 
No, we got him when he was 12. We okay. had him 21 years, which that's a good lifetime for a horse, but he was already 12 by that time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so anyway, at the age 76, I'll be 77 next month. Chances are we probably won't buy a new horse, and hopefully we'll be able to rent out our pasture for horses. I just love to see them out there in the pasture. But anyway, I do miss it. And anyway, I thought some of your listeners might appreciate that. Oh, yeah. Anyway, we're, when we mentioned this uh, in the beginning of the program here, Brian thought that I was going to be talking about the president's tirade of last Thursday night. Isn't really much to say about it. They didn't really turn any constitutional milestones or anything like that, but it was a tirade and a denunciation of half of the American public in a way that I have not seen any president go into a tirade like that before. Oh, and I saw just recently that 57% of the public considers this address to be unnecessarily divisive, so I have some doubts that the president did himself any good by this. But I guess as we come to the elections this fall, we're going to see what happens. And I'm still very hopeful that the president will be deprived of control of at least one of the houses of Congress, and hopefully both, and that he'll not be able to push through some of the radical stuff that he's been trying to do. But one thing that's been going on, too, that I can mention, and this is, well, let's go, let me go back to something else first, and that is Dobbs versus Jackson. This is the abortion decision. We're considering this to be possibly the most significant decision of this century. If we call Roe versus Wade the most significant of the last century, this would be the most significant of this century. This is the decision that overruled Roe versus Wade, it did not have the effect that some people think of stopping abortion, making abortion illegal anywhere. In fact, the court could have gone that route. The court could have simply said that the guarantee of life in the 14th Amendment means that unborn children have a right to life and therefore abortion must be illegal everywhere. But they didn't. Or they could have gone to the other extreme and said Roe versus Wade was right, that the guarantee of liberty guarantees the right to abortion. Therefore, abortion must be legal everywhere. But the court didn't go to either extreme. Rather, the court took a middle ground position. And the middle ground position, they simply said correctly that the Constitution does not guarantee a right to abortion, that history and tradition do not guarantee any right to abortion. In fact, abortion was universally illegal up until the latter half of the 1900s, and therefore, since there is no right to abortion, it is a matter for the states to decide. They can regulate abortion, they can make it legal, they can make it illegal as they see fit. Perfectly reasonable ruling. And yet we have seen what liberals have been calling the summer of rage, the outpouring of hostility toward the courts and so on as a result of this decision. And some are saying that the liberal Democrats may have gained something in the polls, made a major issue that they can campaign on. 
I don't think that they persuaded a lot of people, but they may have fired up some of their own people to be more, motiv- more motivated as a result of this. But I think it, it exemplifies something, and that is that sometimes courts need to proceed slowly. This was just as Roberts' concern. Roberts, as you know, wrote a concurring opinion. He didn't join with the majority in overruling Roe versus Wade, but he concurred with the majority in upholding the Mississippi law, a law that simply provided that there could be no abortions after 15 weeks. And Chief Justice Roberts, in his concurring opinion, said, I agree that law is constitutional, but I think we can rule the law constitutional without having to overrule Roe versus Wade. And as conservatives, that's what we need to do. We need to take the conservative go slow approach and save the issue as to whether to overrule Roe versus Wade for a future case where the issue is more squarely presented. Normally, I probably would have gone along with Chief Justice Roberts in the go-slow approach, but I went with the majority, and I went with the majority for a couple of reasons. First, that every day that abortion continues, 2,000 more unborn children are murdered, And two, we don't know how long we'll have a conservative majority on the court. And that being the case, I'm glad the majority decided the case as they did. However, seeing the reaction that we got, I just asked people to consider, what would the reaction have been if the Supreme Court had simply ruled that the guarantee of life in the 14th Amendment means that abortion must be illegal everywhere? We would not only have a summer of rage, but a summer of violence and probably a great reaction against the court. And much as I would have liked to have seen that kind of ruling, we have to remember that if you push the public too too far on something, they're going to dig in and fight. And there's been some of that here. There would have been more if the decision had been what I would ideally have liked to have seen. But... It means that on this whole issue of abortion, that we are still involved in a major fight. And all the Dobbs versus Jackson did is take the handcuffs off us and enable us to fight on an even playing ground. It means that, unlike before, where we couldn't pass any meaningful pro-life legislation protecting unborn children because the court would strike it down, Now the courts have said it's up to the states, which is where it should have been from the beginning. And anyway, so what it means is we have a battle cut out for us in every state now, battling for the right to life. Not only is that battling for legislation, but it is persuading people that that unborn child is a living human being whose life is worthy of protection. I think we made a great deal of progress in that regard. Increasing majorities are saying that they believe the unborn child is a living human being and saying further that they consider abortion to be an evil, maybe a necessary evil, but an evil. And rather than saying that we should have abortion on demand, which is what you would probably say if everybody was convinced that the unborn child is not a human being, But rather than saying that, saying that abortion should be limited to 
some exceptional cases, life of the mother, rape, incest, a few things like this. And anyway, so we made some progress in the minds of the people. And the majority now seem to believe that the unborn child is a human being. But there is a movement developing right now that is saying that, yes, that child is a human person, but I'm still for abortion. And you wonder, how could people say that? Well, the rationale that some of them are using right now is that all human lives are not equal. All human lives are not equally deserving of protection. And yes, that unborn child in the womb is a living person, but his rights are not equivalent to the rights of the mother. Well, again, there's no basis for saying that. And... But it means that we still have a job of persuasion ahead of us. And rather than what a lot of us thought after 49 years, I mean, this was my thinking. Not really, but sort of. My thinking was during all the time, 49 years, before, even before Roe versus Wade, I was fighting against liberalized abortion bills and so on. But I was wondering all during these 49 years, Will I ever live to see the day that Roe versus Wade is overturned? And if that day ever comes, then part of my life's purpose will have been achieved. Well, I have lived to see Roe versus Wade overturned. But that doesn't mean that I can now rest and say the battle's over. What it means is the battle is now beginning. It's just that now the court is allowing us to fight. So those of our audience who believe that that unborn child's life is worth saving, get to work, because our work is cut out for us as never before. Well, I'd like to go on to talk about something else, and this concerns the COVID vaccine, and we've had a recent decision. As you know, we've talked before about quite a number of these Supreme Court decisions and other federal court decisions on the issue of the COVID restrictions, and for a while, the issue concerned whether or not the governor and other public authorities had the right to close down businesses and especially close down churches because of COVID. I'm proud to say that my two little country churches never missed a single service during that entire time, although in one of them, we did meet out in the parking lot for several weeks. But I'm proud to say that we kept our doors open. I'm told that between 20 to 25% of churches closed permanently and have never reopened. This was a real blow to the church. It was a blow to the church because church attendance is a habit. It's a habit that you need to get into. And once you get out of the habit, it's easy to find excuses not to go again and even in the churches that have reopened, there are a lot of people who were going to church pretty regularly beforehand, but are now saying, well, I know I probably should go to church again, but we just haven't started. Or some will say, yes, we kind of enjoy watching on watching TV preachers instead. It's just so much easier. But the Bible commands us in the book of Hebrews that we are not to forsake the assembling together of the saints, that we are together. And there's a reason for this. 
it isn't enough just to listen to the service. That may be better than nothing if that's all you can do. But God wants us to assemble for the Christian fellowship and for the exhortation. You know, believers are an example to each other. And God wants us to assemble so that we can be that example and encouragement to each other. Anyway, so we have several cases going on right now. One that the Foundation for Moral Law has been handling in the state of Louisiana, where the governor of Louisiana had issued an order that basically prohibited church attendance for a period of time. And a pastor was cited with several misdemeanor offenses for holding services in violation of that order. And anyway, we are very pleased to say that not too long ago, like a month or so ago, the Louisiana Supreme Court just ruled in favor of our client, Pastor Spell, and held that the governor's orders were unconstitutional. They violated free exercise of religion, they violated other constitutional rights, and they went beyond the authority that the state of Louisiana had given the governor to issue such orders. Louisiana, like probably the vast majority of states, maybe all states, had adopted a law, an Emergency Powers Act, that gave the governor power to take certain emergency actions when there was something like maybe a hurricane or a tornado or in this case, a pandemic. However, unlike the laws of a number of other states, Louisiana's law expressly said that the governor does not have power to suspend or violate the constitutional rights of Louisiana people under the U.S. and Louisiana constitutions. That provision was inserted into the law by a state senator named Woody Jenkins, a very staunch conservative Christian ally. But because of that, the court said the governor exceeded his powers, and therefore his order was invalid. Therefore, the charges against the pastor had to be dismissed. We're still in federal court in that case, and in the federal court, we're arguing that not only must the criminal charges be dismissed, and they're not going to appeal that, I don't think, because that's based on Louisiana law, but further, that the statute violates the establishment and free exercise clauses of the First Amendment, as well as other parts of the Constitution. We're scheduled to argue that case in the Fifth Circuit next month, October, and we'll see the result, and we will keep you informed. But... Then we've had the issue arise concerning vaccines. And again, here in this program, we're not taking a position either way on whether you should or should not be vaccinated. If you believe you should be vaccinated, we're not gonna get into any argument with you about that. All we are saying is it should not be forced on people who do not believe in vaccination. And we have seen several cases arise, and lately many of these have been in the military setting. And last week we filed a brief, an amicus brief, with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals on behalf of Navy personnel, particularly a large group of Navy SEALs, but other Navy personnel as well. And the federal judge in this case, about a year ago, had granted a preliminary 
injunction in favor of these Navy SEALs. And then a few months ago, he expanded that to be a class action on behalf of all members of the Navy. And that has appealed to the Fifth Circuit. So we filed a brief on their behalf a week ago. And we filed similar briefs in other cases, one involving an Air Force officer. We've also given assistance to a Marine Lieutenant Colonel. Right now, we have class action injunctions prohibiting the military from taking action against those who have religious objections. This covers all Navy people, covers all Air Force people, it covers all Marines. We don't yet have a class action order on behalf of Army personnel or Coast Guard personnel, but hopefully those will be forthcoming. And those are all on appeal. So this is going to continue, but temporarily we're doing quite well. However, we've got a really interesting case that just came up last week. And this does not involve the military, rather it involves the District of Columbia. The case is <coughs> Fraternal Order of Police, Metropolitan Police Department, Labor Committee, D.C. Police Union, in other words, the Labor Union representing the police in the District of Columbia, versus District of Columbia. And it's a decision by Judge Maurice Ross of the Superior Court of the District of Columbia Civil Division. <coughs> the Fraternal Order of Police had challenged an order by Mayor Bowser of the District of Columbia requiring all D.C. employees, including the police, to submit proof of vaccination, including a booster shot, and threatening them with disciplinary action, including dismissal from their jobs, if they failed to do so. Now, the interesting thing about this order and this lawsuit is it's brought not just on behalf of those who have religious objections, but it's brought on behalf of the police force in general, whether their objections to the vaccine are religious or medical or I just don't want it or whatever it might be. And anyway, the court has now issued an order striking down Mayor Bowser's executive orders for vaccine, saying these orders are unconstitutional. And the interesting, to go a little background of the case here, on December 20th of 2021, the mayor issued her order in which she said, District government employees, contractors, interns, and grantees shall obtain a booster shot against COVID-19 and shall submit documentation of their booster shot. And then the lawsuit was filed, and I love the way the judge approaches this. It's not just a matter of religious liberty, but it's concerning executive power and the nature of vaccine mandates and executive power. He says, a vaccine mandate is not an ordinary, everyday exercise of power. It is instead a significant encroachment into the life and health of an employee. And he cites a lot of court cases after each of these statements. I'm leaving those out. It is strikingly unlike any other worst place regulations. We'll continue.
Welcome back to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I'm happy to hear you talking about these challenges to these vaccine mandates, particularly as they apply to our service members. And uh, you were in the midst of sharing a quote when we hit the uh, hit the mark where we had to take the break. Uh, let's let's pick up where you left off. All right. In this order, of course, it's not dealing with members of the armed services. It is specifically brought by the police union there against the District of Columbia. But the reasoning of this does not seem to be limited to police forces either. It's applying to all government employees and possibly even beyond government employees. But Judge Ross says in this case, a vaccine mandate is not an everyday exercise of power. It is instead a significant encroach into the life and health of an employee. It is strikingly unlike any other workplace regulations typically imposed, as it cannot be undone at the end of the workday. What he means here is, if they had imposed a mask requirement, okay, you put on your mask when you get on the job, and when you leave work, you take the mask off. But no, you can't undo a vaccination. That's permanent. And so he says, thus, there is an expectation that a vaccine mandate must come from a legislative body. The Secretary's imposition of a vaccine mandate fell within the authority Congress had incurred on him. That's concerning some federal regulations, but, and then citing also Alabama Association of Realtors, in the case where it says, we expect Congress to be speak clearly when authorizing an agency to exercise powers of vast economic and political significance. And Jacobson versus Massachusetts, the standard vaccine case, although it goes way back to 1905, according to settled principles, the police power of a state must be held to embrace at least such reasonable regulations established directly by legislative enactment, as will protect the public health and the public safety. So all of these cases stand for the proposition that if we're going to have something that is as sweeping as a vaccine that is really permanent rather than a mask that you put on and take off. This needs to be done by the legislature, not by the executive. And the judge continues, here there is no indication that the District of Columbia Council had even considered a vaccination mandate for district employees. The Coronavirus Support Emergency Amendment Act of 2020 was issued on May 27, 2020, months before vaccines against COVID-19 were authorized and over a year before booster shots were recommended. And the DC Council had passed numerous statutes related to vaccines and COVID-19, but no statute explicitly requires COVID vaccine vaccination or 19 vaccinations for district employees. And so since the legislature has not imposed this, rather it's been imposed by the mayor, court says, we don't believe the mayor has this authority. As he says, failing to oppose a vaccine through emergency executive orders, the mayor now primarily argues she has authority to levy a vaccine through district regulations. And the court proceeds to demonstrate that those regulations as well fail to give her any such authority. Further, the mayor claims she can impose a vaccine mandate through her power to regulate the occupational safety and health of district employees but this claim is without merit. Significantly, the Supreme Court has provided relative, relevant guidance on this issue. 
and cites from a decision earlier this year against OSHA in the same regard, where the Supreme Court said that Congress had not given OSHA power to enforce vaccine mandates, and the president cannot add to OSHA's powers where the legislature is not. Applying this framework, the mayor cannot impose a vaccine mandate through the D.C. Code, although COVID-19 is a risk that can occur in many workplaces. It is not an occupational hazard in most. In other words, you're not more likely to get COVID at work than you are anywhere else, so it's not a hazard unique to the workplace. Moreover, it is not an occupational hazard for plaintiffs. And so the court simply says the mayor does not have this authority, and therefore the motion for summary judgment by the police union is granted, and the mayor is permanently enjoined from implementing, imposing, and or enforcing the COVID-19 vaccine mandate that had been established by her regulations. And further ordering that all disciplinary actions that are issued, proposed, or taken pursuant to the COVID-19 vaccine mandate must be stopped, they must immediately cease and be dismissed with full reimbursement for all police for any loss of benefits, pay or rights, and any all related disciplinary proceedings to be expunged from their records and further ordered that the scheduling conference hearing is vacated. Anyway, so very possibly this will be appealed, but a very, very clear victory for those who have been objecting to vaccine. And this is an order, I think, that can be of value in many cases around the country and should be cited by many who are objecting to the vaccination. Anyway, one of the things that I found very interesting as I was looking at this case is to see the reactions to it. A official on the mayor's staff said, we are flabbergasted by this ruling. And anyway, flabbergasted, why? Because when you're in D.C., liberal talk is the only kind of talk you hear. And so this is surprising coming from a judge, but particularly coming from a judge in D.C. They're shocked at this. Whether that means they'll appeal, we'll just have to see. But the District of Columbia, of course, is the center of liberal thought. And that makes it rather interesting to see, under liberal thought, why there'd be such support for vaccine and such opposition to those who have objections to the vaccine. Sometimes we have asked, although the question has been asked rhetorically, where is the American Civil Liberties Union now that we need them? When our civil liberties are being violated by vaccine mandates, where is the American Civil Liberties Union? They come to the defense of all kinds of civil liberties, but where are they now? And I think the answer to that question has to be that there is a genuine paradigm shift going on right now in regard to the way liberals and conservatives regard individual civil liberties and civil rights. And Let's think about that for just a moment. 
couple of years ago, it was 19, or 19, not 1920, 19, I testified in a Alabama legislative committee hearing in support of a bill, House Bill 148. It was proposed by a conservative state legislator by the name of Matt Friday, who is now a state judge, but Representative Friday had proposed a bill requiring that all institutions, primarily talking about state universities, that are sponsored or supported by the state have to afford full rights to all those who wish to exercise their right of freedom of speech. Particularly, they've been concerned about number of cases where conservative speakers had been silenced on Alabama campuses. In fact, we in the foundation have been involved in one such case. It involved a rather flamboyant speaker who had come to speak for the college Republicans at the University of Alabama. And anyway, several leftist groups had threatened violence if the speaker were allowed to speak, and he was flamboyant. But the state university officials, just a few days before the speech, told the college Republicans that because there was a threat of violence, they were going to have to pay for security. They had to pay, I believe it was $10,000 to provide for campus security to ensure that there were no demonstrations, not demonstrations, not, no violence resulting from the speaker. And they came to us and asked us for help. And we simply wrote a lengthy letter to the administration explaining that campuses are to be centers of free speech and how this is actually a penalty. To impose this at this late date is, in effect, to tell the college Republicans that they can't have the speaker and they've got to close down the speech. And anyway, so we went on to say that it is the responsibility of the university, not the college Republicans, to ensure that there is an atmosphere of order. And the whole idea that leftists are going to demonstrate, and therefore the college Republicans have to pay a penalty, that is absolutely absurd. And we told them, since the speech was going to be on a Tuesday night, that we would have to hear by 5 o'clock on, thir on Thursday before that Tuesday, or else we were going to take legal action. Well, a few minutes before 5 o'clock, we got a message from the university that they were going to drop any financial charges here, and so the speech took place. But that was just one of a fair number of similar examples. A couple other examples, I wish I'd known this earlier, but a similar speech, I think by the same speaker at another state university, resulted in the conservative group there capitulating and paying the fees. But anyway, so Representative Friday had a bill that would say that campuses cannot do this. They basically saying you have to give the same free speech rights to conservative speakers as you give to others. Well, I noticed that the leader of the local American Civil Liberties Union was there. And I was kind of interested in what he was going to have to say. You know, many times they have defended Nazis and other unpopular speakers. And so I wondered what position he'd take. Well, when it was his turn to speak, 
He said, well, we in the ACLU love free speech, but we think there are higher values than free speech and not offending people, not fomenting hatred and so on. Preventing this, we think, is a higher value than free speech, so we are opposed to this bill. Well, the bill passed overwhelmingly despite that, but at any rate, I thought that exemplified quite a change in attitudes being left and right. It used to be a few centuries or a few decades ago that we commonly assumed that if you were for civil liberties, you were a political liberal, and that conservatives were more likely to support law and order. You look back through the last 60, 70 years, and you can see that being the case, for example, in the 1950s, conservatives were very concerned about the threat of communism, both externally and internally, and therefore they supported the House on American Activities Committee's investigations of communist subversion. Well, liberals defended the civil liberties of communists and said that their liberties are being violated by these investigations. Conservatives generally believe that pornography and obscenity undermined the morals of society, and therefore they favored some strict laws on obscenity and pornography, whereas liberals generally believed that such laws violated the free speech clause of the First Amendment. Liberals generally favored the very strict protections of the freedom of search and seizure. For example, we call the exclusionary rule, the idea that, you know, the First Amendment, or I'm sorry, the Fourth Amendment forbids all unreasonable searches. And now we're in the issue whether the search at Miralago was an unreasonable search. And of course, liberals are going to say, oh, no, that was fine. They should have gone further. Conservatives are saying this was a violation. But several liberal justices went a step beyond what even the Fourth Amendment says and invoked what they call the exclusionary rule, a rule which says that any evidence that is seized in violation of the Fourth Amendment may not be used in court. Conservatives generally opposed the exclusionary rule, or at least thought that the exclusionary rule needed to be narrowed. Likewise, with the Fifth Amendment, self-incrimination. Liberals expanded the provision against self-incrimination, which is clearly in the Fifth Amendment, but they went a step further to say that if police don't advise people of their Miranda rights, then the defendant's statement can't be used against them in court, assuming it was custodial interrogation. Four justices, four conservative justices, dissented from that ruling and have been more skeptical of the Miranda warnings ever since. And so for decades, we've seen liberals on the side of civil liberties and human rights, conservatives more on the side of preserving order. But liberal support for the Bill of Rights seems to be waning. Look to the case of this last term, Kennedy versus Bremerton School District case involving a coach who prayed on the 50-yard line of the football field after every game, strictly on his own. He didn't invite anybody to join him, although some did join him. And he was fired for this and went to the Supreme Court. In the Supreme Court, the majority held that this violated his free speech and his free exercise of religion rights. And he had a right to do this, a major victory, we believe, for civil liberties. The liberals on the court dissented, saying, 
no, they need to restrict that speech because of the establishment clause of the First Amendment. Or we can look at a case several years ago, 19 or 2018, the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates, these are crisis pregnancy centers in California versus Becara, involving a California law that required all healthcare providers, including pro-life pregnancy centers, to post notices of how people can obtain abortions if they wish to. Pro-life center says, we don't want to do that. That violates our free speech rights because it forces us to post a message that we don't want to post. Went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court, the conservative majority of the court, 5-4, ruled that California's law was unconstitutional. It forced this clinic to post a message it doesn't want to post. That was what they called compelled speech. And the court said it is just as much a free speech violation to force somebody to say something they don't want to say as to prohibit somebody from saying what they do want to say. The four liberals dissented saying, no, the interest of the state of California in publicizing abortion information justifies this infringement on free speech. Right to keep and bear arms. We've seen in the right to keep and bear arms that conservatives have defended this right as being an individual right. Liberals have said, no, it's not an individual right. It only means the right of the state to maintain a national guard or police force. And now that they've lost on that contention, now they're regularly arguing that the needs of law enforcement supersede the individual's right to keep and bear arms. Anyway, most recently, the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin case, 19 or 2022 case, the Supreme Court again ruled that there is an individual right to keep and bear arms and that a New York law which provides that you can carry a firearm only if you convince local officials that you have good cause for carrying one, leaving it up to the official to define what good cause is, that this is unconstitutional. Liberals again dissented. Now, what we are seeing in all of this is the conservatives are increasingly on the side of defending individual liberties. Liberals are more on the side of wanting to restrict individual liberties in the interest of the state. Now, in the area of the rights of criminal defendants, we are still seeing liberals generally on the side of such rights, probably because they see criminal defendants as an oppressed identity group. But look at the hypocrisy on this issue. Consider our vice president, Kamala Harris, when she was California attorney general, generally she gleefully sought to keep nonviolent offenders locked up, sometimes serving life sentences as habitual offenders. Conservatives are finally waking up to the need for criminal justice reform and I would say this is overdue, that we need to be concerned about criminal justice reform, although we should never lose sight of the needs of law enforcement as well, and as conservatives, we certainly recognize this. Some of this change probably occurred in the 1990s with the Clinton administration, you know, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, when we saw the SDS radicals and others trying to destroy societies, conservatives were on the side of law and order. 
But then when we saw the Clinton administration and some of its violations of civil liberties at this time, conservatives started to wake up to the danger of what happens when big government becomes insensitive to civil liberties. During the Bush administration, the second Bush administration, I should say, where we saw the 9-11 attacks and then we saw the Patriot Act. Well, what Patriot could be opposed to the Patriot Act? And yet conservatives had very mixed feelings about this. We saw on the one hand, yes, we certainly need to act to suppress terrorists and to give government the authority to suppress terrorists. But on the other hand, there could be some civil liberties concerns here that could be used against other people besides Muslim or communist terrorists. And that's what we're seeing today. Conservatives defending civil liberties, liberals on the other side. And this shouldn't be that much of a surprise because conservatives have a natural fear of government power because they recognize the sinful nature of man. It's like Jefferson said in the Kentucky Resolutions, in questions of power then, let no more said to trust in man, but bind him down from mischief with the chains of the Constitution. I remember one time at an Alabama legislative hearing, I was testifying against a bill that would give increased government powers. Those testifying in favor of the bill repeatedly were saying the trouble with Alabamans is they don't trust their government enough. <laughs> that sound you're hearing over there in the background is Thomas Jefferson turning over in his grave. But James Madison put it this way in Federalist Number 51, where he said, what is government but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the government and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. Conservatives recognize the sinfulness of human nature, and that includes government officials. And so they are distrustful of government power, and they see human rights as a basis for limiting government power. But there's another reason, and that's that conservatives look to God as the source of government power, but also as the source of human rights. Look to the Declaration of Independence once again, that we have the right to be an independent nation by the laws of nature and of nature's God. And as Jefferson says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created, not evolved equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Governments only secure rights that God has already granted. Governments don't grant rights. And recognizing this, conservatives have a firm basis for believing in human rights, that these rights are the gift of God, and they, therefore they are unalienable. Now, if you don't believe that rights come from God, what is your basis for believing in human rights? Is it simply in nature? Well, that's what Thomas Hobbes would say, that there is the right of self-defense because we see that any animal in nature, when cornered, defends itself. But 
We see a lot of things in nature that are depraved and would not be a basis for human rights. We see animals in nature that eat their own young and so on. And we see cannibalism in nature and many other things. So that can't be a good basis for human rights. Others that rights are simply from the government, if they're from the government, government can take them away. The point I am making through all of this is that conservatives are natural defenders of human rights, and that is now becoming apparent. Because conservatives have a firm basis for believing in human rights, that those rights come from God. Liberals don't have that basis for believing in human rights, so no wonder we find that their support for the Bill of Rights collapsing. Thank you.